continuing on, obviously, in our uh, Superman HD series. We're in John 16, and the second half of John 16. And um, <laughs> I couldn't help, when I, you know, reading this a few months back, I couldn't help thinking of um, some of the irony of having grown up with, um, with West Indian parents and um, thinking back about the phrase, soon come. Um, and it made me laugh when I think, thought of this because obviously um, it begins with a phrase that puzzles um, the disciples. And, 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 it, and it reminded me of when my dad said to me, soon come, how much we pretty much scratched our heads as, as, as siblings and said, what on earth do you mean? I mean, we'd, you know, we'd never say directly because obviously uh, the whole respect thing and everything, you know, but um, I remember sitting, you know, back in the days when, Kids could sit in cars um, unsupervised, um, waiting for ages, and, you know, hours, and you know, and you know, still pondering what soon come means. Um, and even you know, being at home, you know, uh, my dad will say soon come. I, I I grew to realize it probably meant he didn't even know when he was coming back. <laughs> Um, and it's the, the kind of the human frailty of, of not really knowing what things will take, how long they will take. And so, um, again, I had to kind of start on that, like, what does he mean? And, and again, how even our own fears probably are linked to this whole idea of, what does Jesus really mean? So before we dig in, let's just um, pray. Pray that we might have some some clarity, and um, hopefully God will speak to us, or he will speak. Father, thank you for an opportunity such as this, um, on a day such as this, and a time such as this, Lord God, where we are probably all in very different places, um, yet, Lord, we are all in your place, amongst your people, um, in your time, dear Lord God, where you have given us um, this hope and this message, dear Lord God, that we might um, be enriched um, in our faith, enriched in our relationships, um, particularly our relationship with you, Lord. That, Father, that you have, as it were, um, forewarned us so that we can be forearmed, Lord, in the life, dear Lord, that we would have. And so thank you for the, for the opportunity to teach. I pray, dear God, that your spirit will teach us um, as we sit, Lord God, and that, Father, um, that your words will carry through my words, dear Lord God, into the, into the hearts of, of every believer today, Lord. And even there, Lord God, that it might stir those who even don't believe, O oh Lord, who are, or are struggling. Thank you, Father, because you answer. Amen. Amen. So, so yeah. I mean... <laughs> soon come, or a little while. Let's read the text, and um, hopefully we can um, start to dig through what this actually means. So our text is on 16.16 to 33. So if you want to turn there, please do. I'm reading from the ESV, and it says this. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is given birth, she is sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, 
and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Obviously, John has a lot of dialogue. And um, again, this is another great bit of dialogue that should help us because it's written for our benefit. So let me start with the first couple of verses, um, verses 16 to 18. And again, it's, it's the pondering, as I said, and that's the reason why I use that illustration because it's, it's, it's interesting when you're using a term that's indefinite, like a while, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing quite... There's nothing pinned on it as to what is a little while. Because it's a kind of a relative term, it's quite easy for the person saying it and the person listening to it have two different ideas of what a little while is. The same way I and my brothers had a very different idea of what soon meant when my dad said soon. It's an indefinite word. And this is why it puzzled them. What, is, what does on earth this all mean? But obviously it leads to other questions as well. And, and this is not, again, as I said, I, I, you know, whether it's true or not, it's not because Jesus, like us, we say these things because we don't really know. You know, I'm going down the road, but I don't really know how long it's going to take. So soon, or a little while, I'll be back. But Jesus is actually speaking about a time which actually will be in a little while. In a little while, meant that very night he would be arrested. That little while was actually coming very soon, in a few hours. In that sense, it's not to be confused, this statement, as in the little while referring to the end of the world where Jesus will come back. In a sense, the beginning of the Messianic age, the new Christian age, was actually going to be in a little while. The death of Christ, which would lead to the resurrection of Christ and to the ascension of Christ, would be the beginning of the new age, the new world in which we are all currently living in. We are living in the Messianic age. We're living in the work and the finished work of Christ. And so the little while refers to the initial starting of that work. And that's why he says a little while. It will be in a matter of hours and in a matter of days that all these things will be fulfilled. So at least we understand what Jesus' little while means. Even if we do not know what we mean when we say it. In that sense, the end of the age is a reality that we're yet to experience. And maybe not the best term to use is that it will come in a little while. Um, again, I don't want to get into how well and how good we can actually use the whole term that we're living in the last days. 
But in that sense, the Messianic age talks about us being in the last days. These are the last days, in that sense. The new world order is, is already set as far as Christ has already developed and is grouping a people that will become his own. But we don't know when that will end, when that will be consummated fully. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus clarifies, and a good teacher understands when people look puzzled. And this is not to say that Jesus needed to have some great revelation, as we see through John. There were points where he could supernaturally divine what was going on in people's minds. When people look puzzled, sometimes you don't need that supernatural ability to be able to say, all right, okay, um, I need to clarify that. Sometimes, when, you t- when you're teaching something and you can, see it, you can see it on people's faces, you just know to probably park there for a little while and make yourself clear. But Jesus is not just saying a little, just doesn't, he's, he's, as, a, as, as the title of the sermon says, Jesus is, is not just defining what a little while means. He is, as it were, forearming them what will come. The problem is, is that on, it's not on the disciples' radar, being Jewish, being born in a specific time. It's not within their theology, their beliefs about God, to have a suffering Messiah. The whole idea is that you, you're having this, as it were, anointed king come, who's going to take the throne, as it were, will rule the world. And then the whole idea of going away in a while was like, well, what on earth do you mean? What does going away for a while really mean? You would have to be here to rule. You can't rule away from your throne. You need to rule in Jerusalem. Jesus cannot get through to them. As we see within the rest of the Gospels, the whole idea of him having to go away, of him having to experience troubles, of him having to actually depart from them. It is a nature of of us to kind of, as you were, to allow our culture to shape our theology. It is natural for us to, as it were, take the opinions and the views around us and kind of muddle through and kind of say, well, this is what we're kind of expecting and this is what God ought to be like. And the disciples were doing this, even despite what Jesus was saying, contrary to those ideas. Similar today in um, our therapeutic culture, specifically in the West, we have very little room for a theology that encompasses suffering. It's difficult for us because we've already developed a theology loosely around the culture in which we grew up. This is not a good thing. This is not to say that culture is a bad thing, but we have to realize where our culture has nothing really to say about our theology. Our theology, that which God actually says, should shape our view of culture and that which is good about it and that which is not good about it. I remind you that one of the great negations of our culture, specifically in the West, is that it has no room for a God who allows so much suffering in the world. In that way, our culture doesn't serve us very well because it would say, how can you serve a God That allows all these things to go on. And so, as atheists and humanists will say, I can't serve a God like this. I can't serve a God that allows suffering. It is to be expected that what Jesus says in this world, as, you get, as we got there, you will have tribulations to allow that to stand and sit 
and inform us. But this is not to say that as Christians that we should become ascetics. You know, ascetics is a word that is basically just means a person who is, you know, a lover of suffering, to be, to be simple. We see ascetics like monks and, you know, who flagellate themselves and um, starve themselves, as it were, as opposed to, you know, live on very little, you know, bread and water. This is not that we should invite suffering into our lives as a way of like, well, this is, what I, this is what I need to do. I need to kind of then embrace suffering. This is, again, taking a teaching to an extreme. Suffering will come. We don't need to look for it. This is not about trying to live on, as it were, uh, the bare minimum, whatever that might be. This is not to take away from times of fasting and prayer, but it's obviously to say that we are not called to an ascetic life. As, that is, as, as, as it might be perceived as being more holy or more righteous. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Pain is not good within itself. Anything that Romans 8, particularly 8.28 tells us is that it's a means to an end. In other words, the times of suffering we go through bring us to a point where we are actually get to know God better, that all things work together to, for good for them who love the Lord. The things you go through will somehow bring you into a better relationship. James 1 talks about rejoice when you see times of tribulation come because God will, God will do something through it. Who knows what? but he will do something for it. But this will become more clear as we kind of go through the text. You know, and, and just, again, we're, remember, as we kind of deal with this as a, as a, as a, as a, as a theme throughout this whole, this whole section, that it is, the, it is the state that promises us happiness and safety. Even when it doesn't deliver that. It's the role of government to promise that because that's why he, you know, the government wants you to pay your taxes and all the rest of it, that you continue to contribute to the happiness and the safety of the state. Do not confuse the role of the state with the role of the church. Jesus' church. It does not promise you happiness and safety. Though it does promise you joy. And security, yes, Rob. Thank you. Pastor preaching. <laughs> Note as well that the sorrow where the culture and the actual church actually differ. Jesus says that while we're in sorrow at particular times, the world is rejoicing. Think of um, as the moment will come, the Jews, particularly the Sanhedrin, or some of the Sanhedrin, some of them were actually Christians, though um, they hadn't known it yet. And think of the Roman officials. Think of the, 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 the night of the, the crucifixion how many people slept really well that night? You know, they, they're tucked up in bed and they're like, oh man, the scourge of, of, of Judah is finished. We've, we've done away with this man and hopefully everything will be hunky-dory. We'll wake up in the morning and everything will be fine. Depending on who, how you view Jesus as a Messiah and the King or as a troublemaker from up north, coming down to the south and causing all, you know, bringing his divisive messages and all the rest of it, as it was common within the day that many of the rebellions would have been led by people from the north. They would have slept better. The disciples would be in torment. But certain people had a good night's sleep. Again, one of the contrasts with the culture is that 
there are times when people triumph when Christianity seemingly fails or has struck a blow. They're happy. They rejoice. Think of a point in Revelations, uh, whether you've read that or not, where they, 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 they kill the two witnesses and then they have a party and they, they all give presents. It's an interesting thing. We've done, a, you know, we've done something. And, you know, as, as, um, as Adrian was saying last week, there, there's coming a time when, when forget looking at jihadis. All religion will look like that. All fundamentalist beliefs will look like that. And when they kill us, they will rejoice. Like they rejoiced when bin Laden was killed. We've struck a blow for capitalism and, and freedom and democracy. We are no bin Ladens. Don't get me wrong. We are not looking for people to die for our cause who are not part of our cause. But we could be seen as fundamentalists as well. The very idea that we're not with them on certain ideas and certain things will offend them. And they will rejoice when they kill us, as they are in other parts of the world, which we ought to be praying for every day. Those who are struggling. Because the state is already at that place where they're killing people for what they believe and imprisoning them and torturing them. Remember them, please. In the talks of um, a pluralistic society, and no doubt we are, we're at that place within the UK right now, uh, it is important and I've written it here in a way that I have to make sure this is important to highlight how we differ. And not just how we have things in common and similarities. Our differences are important. The differences in what we believe are important. For the fact that we would use our similarities to, as it were, they say, parse over the differences. Verses 21 to 22. We have an illustration here of a woman. Again, this is um, a common theme within John's Gospel, as we hopefully are familiar with now, if we've gone through the most of the series, of what is called John's antithesis. So God, you know, John takes a lot of things that are, as it were, polar opposites, and he tries to help you to understand what the gospel means by trying to bring these opposites together to, to clarify a teaching. And he uses a woman um, in labor. This is an Old Testament illustration that no doubt would not be lost on the current audience and to some extent is not lost on us today. We know, hopefully, um, those of you who are women who are mothers, what it means to be in labor. And the contrast is not about two different types of people, or like light and dark, but it's about sorrow and joy. About sorrow and joy being in one specific place within a person, and at two different times. The the more direct illusion seems to be, for those of you who want to look it up, is, um, is in Isaiah 26 about the times of trouble where like, are described like a woman's birth pangs, where Israel is going to be overrun, and Isaiah is prophesying that. But it would lead to a time of peace. But I can't help seeing Genesis 3 in this as well. About, I will greatly multiply your, your pain in labor. And I, I just need to kind of clarify what I, what, why this is important. And I, and, I, and I think this is important for us to understand how this illustration applies. 
One of the things we get within Genesis 3 about the man having to work by the sweat of his brow and by the woman having greatly multiplied pain within labor is that anything good in this world will take some hard work. No doubt you are, you know, any of us who frequently use the internet, we are probably bombarded at certain points with things about get-rich-quick schemes. You know, work from home. You know, people earning, you know, 880, you know, 880 pounds a day, you know, or a week. You know, and you could, you could, that could be you too. You know, lessons from the rich. All these get-rich schemes. The reason why I don't believe them, and no doubt probably you don't believe them, I hope, <laughs> is that we realize that it tries to, to appeal to you by bypassing the whole idea of hard work and difficult times. The thing is, that it, when, you, when, when you read it, it's, it's too good to be true. You mean, we, we all could be just be doing this and then all of a sudden we'll be making this kind of money? We don't believe it. In the technological age that we're living in where we've got so many labor-saving devices and all the rest of it, we, we realize that life, good things take hard work. You know, I, I give you, um, you know, I, I, I illustrate um, most of the time for a living and, and, and no doubt a lot of us have that experience that, you know, um, especially when we were in primary school, that drawing lessons were, were, were they're like easy lessons. You've done that when, um, you know, yeah, you didn't have to bring out your maths book, you didn't have to bring out your English books, and, you know, those were the, those were the doddles. And to some extent, I thought that too. I mean, I enjoyed drawing, obviously. Um, the minute it became work, it's very difficult. The minute you know that somebody is waiting for an image at the end of the day, it is very difficult. I learned very quickly, you know, in my, in my 20s, when you're working for a paycheck and you're, even when you're drawing, it is a difficult task. The joy that we seek is going to come through a difficult time. The real joy. This week, um, you know, why I can particularly um, take this illustration on board is, is my wife is due within the next month. And we went to antenatal classes this week. And again, we sat down and we were told what to expect. As Jesus is, as it were, forearming them. And, you know, and obviously you come to that section where you get the pain relief. The options available. Should you need it? <laughs> you know, it doesn't actually, you know, it, I mean, I've, obviously I'm not, a, I'm not a woman. I've never, I've, I've seen the pain. Um, it doesn't help the pain being told <laughs> that it's going to come. <clears throat> it doesn't help. But it does help to be forewarned, doesn't it? It does help. To kind of like, you know what, this is, this is what's coming. But notice the importance of this, of this particular illustration. Your time of sorrow, which is coming, will be swallowed up by joy. This is not like, oh, it's going to be difficult and then it's going to kind of lead into a good time and then it's going to go back to... A... It's saying that, and, 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 and like it is for a woman, you know, and for those of you who probably marvel at how people have had six and seven odd children, you know, wasn't labor enough the first time. There's a point where the reality of going through that difficult moment is completely swallowed up by the joy of seeing that child born. Completely swallowed up. To the point where, you know, where, other, where you see other women saying, don't worry about that, 
trust me, you just need to go through it, and then when you get to the other side, it will be fine. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. It will be really difficult. But trust me, it, will not even, it wouldn't even be on your radar once the child is born. That's why Jesus says, no one will take that joy from you. It swallows it up. Completely. You know, the, 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 the nature of being in relationship with Jesus is such that it's, 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 a, it's an... He constantly wants us to, as it were, speak into our lives, warn us. And, you know, one of the, one of the references I saw when I kind of uh, was kind of putting this section together was Genesis 18, 17. Good to know. But this is the point where Abraham is having a meal, as it were, with the angel of the Lord and some other angels. And, and they're off on their way to Sodom. And then the angel's about to leave. And then he turns and he says, how can I not tell you what I'm going to do? Can I, can, I, can I do a little jump up on my pedestal and, and say another thing and, and kind of push this whole idea of, you know, where you guys are all at in your own theology? And I say this to say, not that it's about trying to big your head. God is speaking to us. The culture around us is speaking to us. God wants to tell you what is happening, who he is. Are you taking the time to get to know that? Are you taking the time to dig into your word on a daily basis and say, God, just speak to me today. Show me who you are. The nature of a relationship is that God wants to share that knowledge with you. It's a, very, it's a fundamental, we're not called, as it were, as we, you know, as, as we go a little bit deeper, to, try, to kind of just come into some kind of kingdom or state where no one can be questioned. The kingdom of God is a family. A family, not of grandchildren, but of children who are related through Christ to God, who is the Father. And that relationship is such that he wants to tell you things, as it is natural in any kind of relationship, to share information. Theology is not for the elite. It's for everybody. We're all disciples. Verses 23 and 24. Now, let me clarify something here. You will not need, in that day you will ask me, ask, you will ask nothing of me. Does not mean that there will come a point where the disciples will have all knowledge, all compassing knowledge, and they will not have to have any questions anymore. They've just got it all on lock. It's not about that. Rather, Jesus is alluding to his resurrection. In that day, that day is a, a reference to the resurrection day. It's, it's, it's one of those things where he's, what he's saying to them, knowing the kind of questions churning around in their mind, and probably what would be churning around in our mind if we were in their position at that particular time, is that when we're trying to figure out what on earth is he talking about, where Jesus is really trying to say to them, you know what, you will see it, you will believe it when you see it. There comes a point in some arguments or some situations where trying to describe something to somebody, basically you have to end up saying, you know what, let me show you. There are situations where things that are so complex or so profound that you really just have to take somebody there. And he said, you know what, tell you what, let me, let me not even say anything anymore. Let me just show you. Let me just show you because, you know what, that will be the end of all questions. In that fact, the meaning of, I go away a little while and I'll come back a little while. You know what, let me take you there. And then in that day, you will have no, all these questions will be answered. The Messiah is not going away in the way that they think he's going away. The resurrection will answer those fears. He will show them what he means. 
Sometimes we have to show people what we mean. Even what Christianity is about. There's a point where our preaching, our teaching, our words have to be demonstrated by actions as well. And that's what Jesus means. You will know and you will not ask me any questions related to this particular matter. The rest of it, 23, um, the second part of um, 23, where he now says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Again, um, we are living in the context, and this, again, we, 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 this is where, again, the chapter divisions help us, but at the same time don't help us. The importance of reading, um, you know, the other day I was, I, was, I was sharing to somebody that the importance of probably taking time to read books within, reading whole books within one sitting is helpful so that the theme kind of carries through. We kind of read it how it would have naturally been read, read at the particular time. And it's good to practice that. Obviously, on days where you don't have a lot of time to read, read some of the shorter books. Just read them right through how they would have done. You know, nobody, you know, you get a letter today, not that we really do get letters, but maybe we get emails, obviously. Uh, but we get emails and we get letters and we don't kind of read the first three paragraphs and then kind of say, let's, let's, let's leave that and I'll come back to that the next time and then read it. Some people write long emails like that where you have to do that. But the reality is that we, they've been designed to be read in one sitting. Am I correct? Okay. And so sometimes it's actually good to practice reading books within a sitting. If you read this in a sitting, you'll realize that the weight of chapter 15 is still being carried over into this chapter. The abiding in me. The abiding in me is that this is what Jesus is trying to preserve. Your life in me. And this is why the priority of prayer is rooted in that abiding, the in-language of abiding in Jesus. Jesus is not inviting them to pray for whatever they want. This is not what he's saying, as some people have obviously taken it to be that way. Because it is assumed that the disciples are in the vine, in this relationship with Christ, their prayers are not to be inwardly focused, but centrally focused on the vine itself, which is Christ. The priority of the vine. Not the priority of myself as a, as a branch and, and what I need and what I, as if we can exist without the well-being of the vine itself. And we need to think of it as the priority of our prayers are centered on the whole idea of what it means to be abiding in Christ. I'll give you an illustration. It's like, um, say you as a parent, say to your child, who's ready to go to school, whatever level, it doesn't really matter, and says, tell me whatever you need for your studies. You're going back to school, you know, this normally happens around August time, right? You're going back to school, whatever you need, give me a list. And we'll go and, and I'll sort it out for you. As a parent, there are certain things you're expecting to see on that list. And there's certain things you're not expecting to see on that list. If you, if you follow my illustration. You might see very specific things. Like... The specific textbook, it's got to be this textbook. This is the one we're using. Get that one. It has to be this uniform from this particular shop. You'll see lots of specifics. You might find that in the uniform area, a pair of Nike Air Force Ones show up. Is it safe to assume that the school requires you to wear Air Force Ones? We, <laughs> if they're all back, yeah, it's true, actually. You could get away with it. 
But it's, we would acknowledge that the Air Force One's not a specific need, wouldn't we? We may grant it, but at the end of the day, we realize it's not rooted in the reality of what it needs as a priority to what it is to be schooled. It's not a priority to your schooling. The maturity of prayer is that it is rooted in the knowledge of what is actually, what, what is good for me as a Christian. My priority in prayer is what's good for me, Lord, that's going to help me to abide. In my schooling of what it is to live in this world as a Christian. My priority. We might realize there are certain hardships that cannot be prayed away. If we take James 1 again into consideration, they could be schooling us in ways that are necessary. Our priority in prayer is the well-being of our Christian walk. The maintenance of our Christian walk and our obedience. Why is this prayer life so good, so great, to be cherished? Verses 25 to 28. Jesus unpacks that. Because we are loved by the Father. Because Jesus is loved by the Father... He's inviting us to enjoy that relationship. Jesus is obviously throughout the Gospels seeing, constantly praying. He is a praying man. We are invited to join in that relationship that Jesus has with the Father. Again, looking back to chapter 15, we have to see how the abiding language helps us to understand the nature of this relationship. So that, it un- so that we can have greater understanding about what it means to say in Jesus' name. You know, no doubt we've had a lot of teaching probably on what it means and what Jesus' names means and why we say it and all the rest of it. But Jesus says he's not speaking figuratively figuratively anymore. He's not talking in cryptic language. He is saying that because you've been in, because I have loved you and you love me, that relationship is extended into that, in, in how the Father loves those, loves Jesus, and therefore those of us who are in Jesus are enjoying that relationship and that love of the Father as well. If you love Jesus, It's like, again, going back to the whole idea of us being either in Adam um, or being in Christ. I mean, all humanity is, as it were, that we are sons of Adam in that regard. We're all born that way. And the whole idea of being part of humanity is not something that we invoke by Adam's name. I will walk upright and walk on two feet in Adam's name. It's inherent that our humanity isn't dependent on invoking the fact that we are born humans. And Jesus' name in that sense is not, as it were, an incantation. It's not the thing that you add on to a prayer, contrary to certain other people's beliefs, that we add on to prayer to kind of like clarify that, you know, that the, 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 the right thing has been said. It's like, it's like the abracadabra that makes the magic happen. Neither is it the name dropping that gives us the squeeze, that kind of gets us in there, you know? Like going to a club and like saying, yeah, yeah, I'm with, I'm with the DJ. Drop the name that they all go, yeah, come on in, sorry, didn't realize it. You know, we don't have a relationship with God by one degree. 
You know, like, you know, <laughs> I kept on thinking of, like, you know, how, how Jesus is trying to explain this and unpack it. It's, it's, like, it's not like, you know, like when you're in one of those relationships where someone promises you something, but it's their relationship that you're really with somebody else that you're, they're dependent upon? You ever felt that awkwardness when you're, you're going somewhere and asking for something? Uh, oh, I know, I, 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 I know Bill. And you're hoping they remember Bill or they even know Bill. And, 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 and like you're, you're hoping that they will be able to give you the squeeze that you're looking for. Yeah, a friend of a friend. You, don't, you want to avoid that kind of like one degree removed. You, know, you want the relationship or the introduction where you have the relationship, where you, can, where you have got access to that. And that's what Jesus is saying. You have access to that. You love me? You're already, you're already in. I've already told the Father who you are. You're in. You don't have to name drop. You just say who you are. And that's exactly what he's saying. So in that sense, when we say in Jesus' name, it's good to bear in mind that we are saying it on the basis that we are are saying this directly to God on the basis that of the finished work of Christ. I can say this directly to God because Jesus has died, has resurrected, has ascended to the Father. He knows who I am because I've been called by him. And therefore, that finished work means that, man, in Jesus' name, I can give thanks to the Father. That's what it means. Because of Jesus' finished work, I can speak to the Father now. The finished work of God. Nothing more, nothing less. In Christ. So Jesus' name is an important part of our prayer life, but it's important to understand that it's not the words we say, but it's what we believe about Jesus that actually gives it the benefit. Verses 29 and 30. I, I, I want to quote one of my lectures. I, I think this is a great way of putting it. You know, he says, this is what you would call a disciple moment. <laughs> disciple, quite literally. Um, 29 says, these disciples say, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. We know that you know all things, you know, it's, I won't finish the quote, but the whole idea is that it's one of those things where people affirm that they really know what's going on and they really have got no idea yet. Now we know all things and, you know, no doubt we've come to numerous points in our lives where we think we've really actually understood something. It is a disciple moment, but this won't come clear until we hit verse 31. How often are we quick to say we have an understanding of something that we only have begun to comprehend? This is not to say that the disciples are not understanding something. You're at the beginning of that comprehension. You're not at the end of it yet. You know, I remember um, (laughs) my first, um, just before my first driving lesson and you know, and I think of driving in, in, in this regards because I had numerous theories of it. You know, yeah, you just get in there, you just wheel, accelerate, brake. What more is there to it? And you know what? My first lesson went really well. You know, I thought I was quite impressed. And then obviously, you know, your driver instructor throws in a few maneuvers and all of a sudden you suddenly realize where you are on that road of comprehending what it is to drive. I had my own disciple moment. I thought I knew what I was doing. Throw in a few experiences and a few difficult situations and all of a sudden I realized I was only beginning to comprehend where I thought I was already at the end of that road. We can be like that with our theology. We can think that we're actually at the beginning of a road, at the, at the end of a road, when we're really at the beginning. We want everything simple, you know, everything simple. 
If you think of driving, there's a point where driving becomes quite simple after you've gone through the whole complexities, after the routine of it all, and you know, there are things that you will do second nature. Can I tell you something? This is a great, I'm going to reveal a great mystery of theology. That simplicity that we look for in the gospel, and I'm speaking specifically for those of us who have, who have actually been um, Christians for a minute, that simplicity only really comes once you've actually learnt something. You've gone through it. The simplicity we seek only comes at the end of the complexity of trying to understand something, wrestling with the word, wrestling in prayer, going through stuff, having faith, grounding that in faith, believing in God against all odds. You need to go through something. Now, I'm not saying that simplicity, you cannot be saved with, you know, within a simple concept, but I'm saying that sometimes you need to, I've met people who think that they've really, you know, they're, they're really there and they're not. They're not there. I've, li- I've been a Christian long enough to see a lot of people picked off. I'm going to tell you the truth. I've lived long enough to see lots of people who people would have looked at and said, you know what? That brother's solid. That sister's solid. I've seen a lot of them picked off. They couldn't deal with the suffering lived on that simple side of theology where, you know, it's just belief in God, man, just... As long as the emotions keep coming, I'll be all right. It's not it. You need to move in deeper. You need to move in deeper. That's all I'm going to say about that. Jesus punctuates the disciple moment by um, 31. And this is his last kind of words in this section where he says, do you believe now? It's ironic. (laughs) Do you now believe? I've said that to a few people, myself, because I understand where I was when I first became a believer. And I said, yeah, you, you believe now? And I've said to people, you know what, let me, I'll see if you're around a few years' time. Jesus knows these disciples are going to be around in a few days' time. He knows that they're going to go to the end. But he knows that Judas ain't going to make it. I don't have that kind of knowledge. Only Jesus knows. Only the Father knows. Only the Spirit knows. Like the disciples, the time of Jesus, our flaky faith in moments of ease and comfort. Jesus knows that that faith will easily fall away. But the blessing is that it's not the quality, as it were, of their faith, but the the fact that it is undergirded by Christ's work. That's why he says to him, you will have peace. In this world you will have tribulations, but in me I have overcome the world. I um, had the privilege of <laughs> looking at a piece that Carson, John, um, Don Carson sent, and someone was, had it up on Facebook, and I had a look at that whilst preparing this and I, and I thought wow that really helps and he, and he used the illustration of two, um, two Jewish men talking um, on the day of, um, on the, of the Passover you know one he describes as being quite solid and like you know God is going to deliver us tonight and it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay and I'm looking forward to it because you know Moses has spoken and another one is, is, is you know oh, I don't know it's been pretty hairy around here lately with all the plagues and whatnot. And then um, the other Jewish man says to him, well, you've done everything you need to do, right? You've, you've, you've put the 
the blood on the door and all the rest of it. And he says, yeah, yeah, I've done it, I've done it. It's going to be all right. And, you know, he presented the question, he says, which, which of those men were saved that night? And the simple question is, is that both of them? And he, and he punctuates this, and I, have to, and I have to quote it because this is so relevant to what we're dealing with here. He says, it's not, it's not the intensity of our faith that saves us. It's the object. The object of Christ that saves us. I have... In this world, you will have tribulations. But it's okay. You're at peace. I have overcome the world. I have fought that. This is why when I read chapters like you know, Romans 8, you, can, you are more than conquerors. I've realized that the fight, the real fight, has actually already been won. I, I just, I, you know, I, 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 I park that. I park, you know, you know, the guys I do the, the, the Bible study with, uh, you know, at that theme, I said, do you know what it means? You know, it's, it's, a, it's an ironic statement, you know, to be more than conquerors. To be more than conquerors is that we're actually already living in a victory that we've already got. It's like seeing two boxers, you know, you're called into a boxing match, and, you know, and the WBC belt is already around you. Somebody has already fought it. You don't even have to go to the fight. We have to fight where we are based on that finished work of Christ. Where we are at. Because you know what? Doubt creeps in and starts telling you you have no right to wear that belt. You have no right to wear Christ. You are not a righteous person. You are not a nice person. You have no right. What have you done? And that happens to us, doesn't it? But Jesus says, be at peace. I have overcome it for you. Let's park at that knowledge. Let's take some time to pray. And let's center ourselves in the object of our faith. Let's believe the promises of Jesus. Let's believe that he's actually done that thing, that we have a right to be called the sons of God, that we have right to take on that championship that he has won for us. Let's pray boldly. Father, this is your word and your truth, Lord. I pray I've only, um, I have begun to do that faithfully, Lord. The work of your spirit, Lord, which, is, which has happened even before, Lord, I have even spoken. And, you know, Lord, even before any of us were even saved, Lord, is speaking to our hearts today. Let those who have their doubts, say, Lord God, be encouraged. You know, let those of us, dear Lord God, who are, who are rolling on strong, dear Lord God, even be more encouraged, dear Lord, today to fight the good fight, Lord. Knowing, dear Lord God, our times of tribulation will come. Our difficulty come, will come, dear Lord God. Who knows with, whether it will be financial hardships, whether it will be relationships, whether it will be sickness, dear Lord God, whether it will be bereavement. Father God, our difficult times will come where we will be struggling to trust you, Lord, as we ought to. But Lord, let the object of our faith never be removed. Even if our faith falters, say, Lord God, let the position that Christ ought to have and should have in our lives as believers remain, Lord. Let our prayers be directed to us, our ability to abide, that that be our priority, that we might grow, Lord Father, well, attached to that vine, Lord, knowing it's you that holds on to us. Let us pray for our perseverance, dear Lord God, so that we will do well, Lord God, in our daily lives. Faithful God, hear our prayer. Amen.
Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.